So Luke 3, verses 1 to 18. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. Amen. May God bless this reading of his word. I asked you earlier on to think about things you would change about yourself if you could. Megan said to me at the back, I'm intrigued to know how you're going to fit that in with John the Baptist. Well, of course, the reality is, short of spending 6K on corrective eye surgery or going through endless expensive uh, operations or difficult procedures to get teeth or eyes fixed or this enlarged or that reduced, most of us are stuck with how we look. And sometimes we can be uh, tempted to think we're stuck with who we are. And John the Baptist's challenge to the people was a challenge of change. And it was a challenge of change that recognized that what he was calling them to was a preparation for one who would come who would make change possible. You know, all of us know the reality of thinking that the patterns and the habits and the ways that we live are just who we are and and just the way we are. And yeah, there are some things about us that are fixed. There are some aspects to our appearance, to our personality, 
We've inherited characteristics from our parents and, and you know, we probably have mannerisms and reactions and so on that come from one another side that we didn't even decide to start doing. Just somehow they're hardwired into our DNA. But then there are other things that we tend to just accept because that's the way we are, the way we've become. And we don't really think we can change. And actually, in some respects, there's a reality to that. There's a reality because if you cast your mind back to the time before uh, you gave your life to Jesus, I would imagine that there are aspects to uh, the way you lived and the way you reacted and the way you were with people that might not have been what you wanted, and yet you find it very hard to change. One of the joys of ministry is journeying with people and seeing the ways in which that which seemed unchangeable is changing. And yes, we can all still look at ourselves and see the faults and the brokennesses and the mistakes that we've made and think, oh, I'm just so far from what I would like to be or what I'm sure Jesus would want to be. What we cannot see is how far we've been changed. How does change come about? Is change possible? Can we do it ourselves? Well, no, we can't. And the message of John the Baptist was just a message of inviting and calling people to a place of doing all that they could do in a sense, which was to recognize their need to change, recognize their need for forgiveness and cleansing and rescue, recognize all that they were doing wrong. And yes, there was a call within that to change the way that people did things. And three specific instances John uh, or Luke records for us in, in those conversations. But actually the power to change, the power to sustain a change, the power to be changed goes hand in hand or in tandem with our willingness and preparedness to be changed. Let's have a little look then briefly at this passage. And John, uh, Luke has anchored it very powerfully for us. And so first of all, he's anchored it in human history at a very specific time. The emperor Tiberius was the second Roman emperor, followed Augustus. And we know that the 15 years into his reign was around about 27 to 29 AD. So that's the period we're talking about when John the Baptist came. He tells us that Pontius Pilate was governor or prefect is the actual word, not a school prefect, but the principal's not far off it, someone who's given authority to act on behalf of a higher power. And he was responsible for Judea, which is a kind of southern territory in Israel. And the reason he was in charge of Judea was because one of Herod the Great's sons, Herod the Great was the one who killed the baby boys when Jesus was a baby, so one of his sons was a guy called Archelaus, and he was a monster. And he reigned for about six or eight years until the people that he ruled over actually petitioned Rome to say, could you take this guy out, please, because we can't stand him. And so they took uh, Archelaus, 
they deposed him and they put one of their own guys in, a guy called Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate ruled as governor or prefect from 26 to 36 AD. And so we're told that Herod was the tetrarch. A tetrarch rules a bit. Herod the Great ruled over the whole thing and he divvied it up and gave his sons different bits to rule over. And so when it says Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, then that's a guy called Herod Agrippa. And this is the Herod that had John the Baptist's head removed when his daughter danced at a, at a feast, Salome. It's the same Herod that Jesus was sent to when he was arrested and tried, and Jesus gave him no answer and wouldn't speak to him. Philip was another of the brothers, another of Herod the Great's sons, and he was tetrarch of an area to the northeast of the Sea of Galilee. And Lysanias, we don't know too much about him, but there is an inscription with his dates. We're told that it was anchored in the period not just of secular world history, but Jewish history. Annas was the high priest. We know that he was high priest from AD 6 to 15, and all of his five sons became high priest at one point or another. And Caiaphas was his son-in-law, and he reigned as high priest from 18 AD 18 to 36. So what's the point of Luke telling us all this detail? To tell us that it actually happened in real time. You know, how many people you talk to who think Jesus was, you know, a, a kind of myth or a, a kind of mythical teacher or, or whatever. And actually, Jesus' story is anchored in real time events. There's good documentary evidence. It's anchored in geography in a specific place. So John's ministry was in the Jordan Valley. And at least two places are mentioned in the gospel. So John clearly moved around. So what God does, he does in real time and he does in real places. You know, sometimes in our minds we think, oh, it was all that time ago and all that distance away. Uh, our son Stuart just got back from visiting his sister in Australia and was just going through his photographs. And uh, it's just that weird experience which I had when I came back from there in September. And you, you know, because photographs now are smart, right? You take a photograph on a phone and it doesn't just take the photograph, but it actually captures where in the world you are. So there you are at 35,000 feet flying over Indonesia or flying over India or flying over the United Arab Emirates and your photograph is tagged. This was taken in Iraq. This was taken in India. And it's just a weird feeling. When I came back from Australia, I got a flight at 2.35 in the morning in, uh, in Brisbane, and I arrived at 7.50 in the evening, uh, but I had done like 26 hours of traveling, so go figure. And in that time, looking out over uh, Indonesia and Singapore and India and Iraq and the Middle East and Turkey and Europe and so on, and you're like, wow, that's India down there. That's really cool. And these places stop being uh, just places on a map, but real places. Look, there's desert. Look, there's mountain. Look, there's a dirty, massive river. <laughs> John's ministry was conducted and anchored in geography. John's ministry was anchored in a human story. He came to prepare the people to get ready who needed forgiveness of their sins. 
And before there could be any recognition of a Messiah, before there could be any readiness for salvation, there had to be a movement of repentance and preparation. And you know, there's a, something for us there, because do not imagine that, well, that was, you know, before Jesus came, and that was, you know, that was all way back then. But let's just stay with that principle for a moment. You know, this is a season of Advent where the church, where we are, are looking forward, expecting the, 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 the time when we celebrate the coming of Jesus. But actually, think about it in your own life. Because I wonder if there is a, a sense in which you need or know you need the Lord to come afresh and anew or in some deeper, fresher way. Because all of us in our journey with Jesus can grow stale along the way. All of us in our journey with Jesus can uh, lose a sense of the freshness or the reality or the imminence or the importance of Jesus. All of us can lose that sense of the salvation of Jesus being a dynamic thing. And John's ministry was a call to people to look and recognize what are the blockages What are the things that you actually need to recognize are wrong in your life and take steps to put right in preparation for the coming of the Messiah? The daily verse for the day in my Olive Tree Bible software, which I looked at this morning, was this. Remain in me as I remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. John's ministry was a call to people to get rid of, to recognize the sin and the error and the guilt of the ways in which they were living, to put their hands up and say, guilty. To recognize the ways in which they were living that were that were either a mountain or a valley place, but not a level place for Jesus to come. And so John's ministry was anchored in the story and the reality of the people then. And his ministry is anchored in the reality of your story now because his calling, his calling that comes to us again is to get ready is to prepare. If you knew that Jesus was coming back on Thursday of this week, I suspect you'd spend a few days preparing. I suspect you'd spend a few days doing an inventory of your heart, of your life. I think you and I might spend quite a bit of time on our knees. I think we might, doing that stock take of who we are and where we are, might want to prepare ourselves. And that's what John's ministry was. He was anchored in the prophetic, a specific prophetic task and calling. 
taking the words of Isaiah and a voice of prophecy that had been silent for hundreds of years, and, and Luke's climactic statement after all these other people that he describes says the word of the Lord came to John, son of Zechariah. God has spoken and is speaking. It was the word of the Lord. It was the word of God that had come to John, calling people to repentance. God sent John to call people to do an honest and thorough examination of their lives in order that they might be ready for the salvation of Jesus. Salvation can only follow where there's first been repentance. New life, new depth, new uh, dynamic living in Jesus can only follow where there has been repentance and a recognition of what has been or gone wrong. And so, John's ministry was anchored in salvation history. The promised Elijah who was to come, as, as contained in the words of the prophet Malachi, to prepare the way for the Lord. And so, if he was anchored in all these ways, in history, in geography, in human story, in prophecy, in salvation history, he was angered as well as anchored and so he was angered against hypocrisy, against the people who got baptized but clearly didn't really mean it. You brood of vipers, he called them, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. And no doubt there were Jews there because baptism in those days, before Jesus' baptism, was something that only the Gentiles did. It was something that Jews were prepared to do. They would baptize Gentiles if they converted to becoming Jewish. But John was calling Jews to be baptized. And some of them weren't too chuffed. In the same way that sometimes we don't like to hear a message that puts its finger on the raw, dirty, shameful, hidden, lazy dishonest bits of our lives and says, what are you going to do about that? What are you going to do about that? Because actually right now, it's not me but the Holy Spirit who's putting His finger on the bits of your lives that you know need addressed. And so God sent John and God sends the Holy Spirit who continues to come and say, prepare the way. Prepare the way again. Prepare the way that Jesus might come again and again and again in your heart and in your life and renew you in your calling. Do not become weary in well-doing, we read in Galatians. And so John was angered against the hypocrisy, angered against the easy religiosity of people who might just come out and get a wee dip in the River Jordan because everyone was doing it. It was kind of in vogue to go and get dipped in the River Jordan because, you know, John was, was, uh, was the man of the moment. And he's saying, whoa, don't just, don't just come here and get a dip in the River Jordan and think that that's fine. Any more than he would say, don't just, you know, come here and be part of church 
if actually outside of here you're not going to live as a disciple of Jesus. If we're not going to follow through with the fruit that belongs to repentance. And so he was angered against their hypocrisy of some, angered against the easy religiosity. Well, I'll just go and get dunked and that'll be me. He was angered against the cultural complacency of the Jews that said, well, yeah, I'm sure the Gentiles are going to have their troubles to seek, but we're Jewish and we've got Abraham, so we're fine. And he said, no, you're not. Don't imagine that having a good, solid faith heritage is going to be your get-out-of-jail-free card. Don't imagine, those of you that are part of a good, solid Christian heritage, that actually that puts you in a higher place or a better position than anybody else. God has no grandchildren or great-grandchildren. And then when it came to the specifics, the three categories of people that came and asked John for, their, for his opinion, he was angered. He was angered by indifference. He was angered by self-indulgence. And he was angered by injustice. Angered by indifference. Because there were people there who had plenty, who were living in amongst a world where there were people who had none. Now, it wasn't shirts in the sense that you imagine shirts. If you've got two shirts, give one. It was tunics. So it was a kind of simple undergarment that you wore underneath other robes and so on. Not quite, you know, underwear, but, you know, uh, a kind of simple shift. That's what they all wore. Loincloth and then this kind of simple tunic thing and then a robe and then maybe a cloak on top of that. So if you've got two tunics... Then give to someone who doesn't even have one. Well, you do the translation. Because, you know, we're not necessarily going to be asking if everyone's got enough underwear. But we might well be aware that there's somebody who doesn't have enough of something else. And if you see that there's a need and your heart, heart is hard towards it, then you are indifferent Compassion fatigue is something that is very easy in the city to fall victim to. Very easy to harden your heart because the needs, especially in the city center, are relentless. I think I heard Jackie Pullinger speak once and she said, you know, and and I will put my hands up and say, I don't do this and haven't done this. So, you know, preaching to myself. But she said, you know, when you, she said, I always give to someone who I see begging. She said, partly for them, but she said, partly for my own heart. To protect it from becoming hard. He was angered by self-indulgence. Tax collectors worked like this. The Romans put out the tax collecting rights to tender in an area. It went to the highest bidder. As long as the highest bidder turned over enough tax to the Romans, they weren't too bothered. Now, it meant that the highest bidder who was collecting taxes from their own people could be after that as unscrupulous as they liked. They could collect what they needed to hand over, but they would take an extra cut for themselves, a bit like payday loan sharks. They would just take whatever they could get in order to line their own pockets. And the more they took, the more people hated them. The more people hated them, the more they took. It was a vicious circle, which Jesus broke spectacularly in Jericho with Zacchaeus. 
And so he was angered by the self-indulgence of those who said, because I can, I will. Because I can have a little bit extra just for me, I will. And I don't care who suffers or, or does without. And he was angered by injustice. And the soldiers came and asked him, and I don't know whether they're Roman soldiers or not. They may well have been Jewish soldiers. They may well have been, actually, they may well have been the, the, the security guards that, that protected the tax collectors, because the tax collectors obviously needed a bit of security detail to protect them from the people they were fleecing. Or it may just have been the equivalent of the Jewish police. But either way, whether it was security, whether it was Jewish police, whether it was Roman soldiers, They had power in their hands and the ability to abuse it and to make people victims of injustice. And Jesus was quite clear that he was not the Messiah. He was just calling people to get ready, to identify their need for forgiveness in order that the kingdom might come, in order that salvation might come. I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It will be through him that you will find the power to change. All you can do is put your hands up. All I can do is do an honest searching inventory of my heart and of my life and come and say, Lord, I confess. Lord, I'm sorry. Lord, I know that I've become lukewarm, indifferent. I've become uh, complacent, self-indulgent. I know that my heart is not as passionate for you as it could or should be. I know, but I can't change it. All I can do, Lord, is tell you that I can see and know the state of my heart. And I need the power of your Holy Spirit. Not just to renew the assurance of forgiveness which Jesus freely offers to all who turn to him in repentance, but the power of his Holy Spirit to make different choices, to make better choices. The, the writer, and this is an <laughs> Adrian Plass who wrote copiously in the 1980s and early 90s, and most of you guys won't know who he is, but he was a very entertaining writer. But I remember him writing a little, a little uh, story about a woman who got a train every day, uh, and she got the same train every day, and, and uh, obviously when you're a commuter, you end up seeing the same people on the platform every day, and there was the same guy on the platform every day, and she smiled and then uh, I think one day the train was late, they exchanged a couple of words, and day after day gradually got into a bit of conversation. And then after a while, it began to develop a bit of a friendship. This woman was married, and she began to realize that she was developing feelings for this man as their friendship developed and the time passed on. And it came to the point where she realized that there was a bit of a problem here. And so she thought she needed to have an honest conversation with her husband, and she told him all about it about how this kind of innocent encounter with a stranger on the station platform had become something that in her heart was beginning to threaten her marriage. And her husband 
uh, listened carefully and then looked up and said, catch a later train. (laughs) Catch a later train. What is the simple, practical thing that God might call you to do so that you're not just saying, yes, guilty as charged, but what steps can and need you to take to get the stuff out of the way that is an obstacle to your relationship with Jesus or to put it back where it belongs or to root out the things that are taking up space in your head or your heart or your life that Jesus might otherwise want to occupy. Because all you can do is identify and recognize what it is and where it is. Be honest in your confession and your repentance about it, but then take the necessary steps to make sure that you work around it in some way. Every valley shall be filled in. Every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. And you too, as those who already know and belong to him, will see in you the beauty and the power and the joy and the fullness of the salvation that we will celebrate at Christmas. Let's pray together.